Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. All right. Happy New Year, I suppose. Kimberly, the court has already thrown us off our schedule here. This was going to be a sneak peek for the arguments starting Monday, January 10th. But the court, in a very unusual move, granted arguments in the vaccine cases for a rare Friday session. So a bit of light on the old shadow docket. First, we'll preview those arguments that are set for Friday, January 7th. Kimberly, what's going on here? We got two cases, six lawyers. What's up? So as you mentioned, these are two cases that challenge two of the Biden administration's vaccine mandates. Um, So a little bit of alphabet soup. One is the OSHA mandate, which applies to all employers with 100 or more employees. And the other is known as the CMS mandate. And this is for healthcare facilities that accept Medicare or Medicaid patients. So both questions, though, come down to whether or not these particular agencies have the authority to pass such sweeping mandates. And so if we take a look at the OSHA case, the business groups that are challenging the mandate there say it will reach two-thirds of all private sector workers or over 25% of the population. So let's talk about the OSHA one first, uh, because I think that one's probably on the shakiest ground of the two. Now, OSHA is charged with uh, protecting worker health and safety. And in the past, that's meant things like setting standards for dealing with hazardous materials or um, standards for, you know, the, the providing protective equipment. But with COVID emerging in the last two years, OSHA passed an emergency temporary standard, which requires employees to either get vaccinated or to get tested and mask up. So this was set to go into effect January 4th, but the government has given until January 10th to comply with the vaccine requirement, and it said it won't issue any citations for the testing requirements until early February. So the court has a little bit of time to act here. Now, OSHA says that COVID is clearly a hazard to worker health, and while the business groups and the states challenging the law agree that COVID is a hazard, they say that OSHA can only regulate those hazards which arise directly from the workplace, so not general ones that affect the globe. Okay, so that's OSHA. Uh, And then we have the challenge to the CMS mandate, um, which is very similar. Now, this applies to healthcare facilities, again, that take Medicare and Medicaid patients. And the Biden administration says that's necessary, not for the protection of the healthcare workers, um, but actually for the patients. And of course, that the federal government is going to be on the hook for paying for those patients' care if they actually contract COVID. Now, again, we have a broad swath of states challenging this mandate and say that it will actually make things worse, particularly in rural areas, by forcing healthcare facilities to lay off workers um, who don't want to comply with the mandate. And they say it will exacerbate the shortage of hospital workers um, in those in those areas. And so that was enough to convince a lower court to block the mandate for a large part of the country. So this is one of those cases where we've got the mandate sort of in place, sort of not in place. Um, And that's probably one of the major factors why the Supreme Court is weighing in. Well, Kimberly, I'm curious because you mentioned that the first case might be on shakier ground in terms of how the court might rule on Biden's authority. Why is that? 
You know, I think that that really goes to the specific grant of authority here and kind of how broadly uh, that particular uh, mandate sweeps. Again, 25% of the of the country. And we see really the business groups and the states saying, look, if OSHA can have that kind of authority to affect such a broad, you know, swath of the country, what really limit does it have? And so, you know, I think you know, it's important to consider these cases in context. Of course, we've already seen vaccine mandates come up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court allow those to go forward. But these are very different. So those vaccine mandates dealt with state uh, vaccine requirements or those by universities. And here we have the federal government. Um, and I think instead of looking at, um, you know, those state vaccine mandate cases and how the Supreme Court has dealt with them, probably the federal eviction moratorium um, might be a better proxy. And there, the federal government had tried to prohibit um, evictions to prevent the spread of COVID. And the Supreme Court said that just goes too far. Yes, there's some authority for the federal government um, to come in and take emergency measures, uh, but not to the kind of sweeping extent. And so, you know, getting back to your question, it just like it looks like OSHA is just far more sweeping than the other. And perhaps the connection is a little more tangential than requiring healthcare workers who, of course, are working around COVID patients all the time to get vaccinated to protect patients that the federal government is in charge of caring for. So, Kimberly, the court's hearing this set of cases on an expedited schedule. You talked about how there are some deadlines coming up that aren't really being enforced, so we don't know what they mean. But bottom line, when are we expecting a ruling here in this emergency litigation? Well, in true lawyerly fashion, I, it depends. I don't know. And I think there are a couple of factors weighing here. So if we look, you know, this this term has been unique and that this is the third set of cases where the court has expedited um, them, taking them off the shadow docket and moved them to kind of the main merits docket. And uh, if we look at the timing of those, it's taken a while. So it was more than a month for the justices to get out their opinion in um, the Texas abortion case. The court still hasn't issued its ruling on uh, religious advisors in the execution room, which was also taken off the shadow docket. Um, so it could be that these, you know, take a while. They're pretty hard questions. But one other interesting kind of twist on this case is that both of those other cases where they were expedited, um, there had been a cert petition filed in those cases. And, you know, so they they agreed to just consider them kind of as they were granted cert petitions. And you would expect a full you know, maybe pages long opinion. And that's what we got in the Texas abortion case. These are all emergency requests, which typically the court does not issue full um, opinions on. So that could make it easier for them. But I just don't know which way they're going to go. And, you know, again, this comes at a time, of course, when it's the Biden administration at least thinks it's really important to get these vaccine mandates in place. Right. Because what's interesting about these arguments compared to those other two expedited cases is that these cases are still technically on the shadow docket, right? It's just that we're hearing arguments in addition to it. So that's what makes these even rarer than the other cases. It does. And I think for me, it, you know, not only brings up this question of timing, but also how they're going to issue the rulings. Are they going to issue it in an ordered list, which just is like one sentence, or are they going to do a full opinion? And, you know, really, I just don't know. 
We're going to get an opinion. I think we might. I think we might. Calling it. It would be quite a move for the Supreme Court to hold oral arguments and then, you know, perhaps strike down the ocean mandate in a sentence that has no reasoning to it. Yeah. It's a weird transparency sandwich that would make for. But again, you know, they're working on a, (laughs) they're working on an expedited basis. So. So Kimberly, the court's been hearing arguments this term in the courtroom with limited attendance. You've been one of the lucky few, the proud, who've been in the courtroom there for the press. What is that, the Marines? Yeah, I'm not. Hoorah. Uh, In this case, though, it has kind of an interesting, almost substantive significance because we're talking about vaccines. And we've seen a lot of the courts in the D.C. area going back to being totally remote, but the Supreme Court is not doing that. What do we think about that? Right, Jordan. So you and I, when we were prepping for this episode, we talked about how just down the street, um, you know, the D.C. Circuit is closing up shop um, amid the Omicron um, surge in the area. And of course, there's not a lot of difference in those few blocks from the D.C. Circuit to the Supreme Court. I guess, you know, one thing you could you could think is that, you know, the Supreme Court, if we if we look back on kind of major events that have happened in the D.C. area, they have often been the only kind of courts going uh, back to work. And so we saw during, uh, you know, some major snowstorms, the Supreme Court has been there. We've heard these really harrowing tales of advocates having to get rides with the justices because there's no other way for them to get in. Um, During some of the shutdowns, we've seen the Supreme Court uh, working. And so it may just kind of be in their, I don't know, their ethos to kind of come back as much as they can. Another way to look at it is that if the Supreme Court, a majority of the Supreme Court is inclined to do away with these vaccine mandates, it would look pretty bad if they did so while working remotely, Right, especially for workers who do not have the option to work remotely. So um, I think one interesting thing to say about the fact that they're going in person is that um, the Supreme Court did finally let us know that all of the justices are not only fully vaxxed, but they've also been boosted. Um, but one thing we've noted on this podcast before is that the justices don't actually wear masks during the arguments, and they're sitting right next to them, except for, of course, Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Very weird. And so not weird that she's wearing a mask, but and we've talked about this before, but Sotomayor, who's... I mean, I think it's pretty well publicly known. She's had diabetes, has an underlying condition. She's more vulnerable than at least some of the other justices. Obviously not weird that she wants to take precautions, but if the situation is such that she feels the need to wear a mask, my question is, is it not then weird that her colleagues are not then effectively extending that courtesy to her? I mean, it just looks weird, right? It does. But, you know, it's not as if this is something that breaks down along political lines that we have seen kind of across the country. Um, Instead, it's really all eight other justices who haven't been wearing their masks. So don't really know what's behind that. And one thing I'll be interested to see on Friday is whether any of the justices do decide to go uh, remote. The court hasn't really said anything about that, but you can imagine that particularly with this latest variant, which seems to be having some breakthrough cases that, um, well, and the fact that the justices are are not all spring chickens. Um, You know, there might be some who wanted to go remote, but again, we probably won't know how that's playing out in the background. And we'll just have to see when we get there on Friday, you know, if all nine are there. 
So, Kimberly, should we get into the actual sneak peek that we were going to do before this emergency litigation was granted? It's okay. Monday, Gallardo, that's the first case that the court's going to hear. Again, continuing on the healthcare theme, it's a case that deals with Medicaid payments and reimbursements. The question here is what payments states can recover from third-party settlements? The case arises from a really terrible accident when a 13-year-old was hit by a truck in Florida. Her family received an accident settlement, but the question is, how much can the state get from that settlement? The family says only a small fraction of it because that's what applies to past medical care that the state already paid for, as opposed to future care, which the family's saying almost all of the settlement applies to. So the Supreme Court here has to answer that question under the Medicaid Act of what states are allowed to do in pursuing these third-party payments. And then on Tuesday, Kimberly, we have a couple cases on immigrant detention. That's right. We have a pair of immigration cases that both deal with when non-citizens who have been ordered removed can be detained until they are actually deported uh, from the country. So immigration law allows the government to detain certain non-citizens for more than 90 days. Uh, if their removal cannot be affected within that time, but it doesn't actually provide a specific time period. So in a 2001 case, Zedvitus, a divided court suggested that detaining a non-citizen for longer than six months without providing at least a bond hearing would raise serious due process concerns. And as a result, some courts have imposed a six-month requirement where non-citizens must be given an opportunity to seek release on bond. I think it's important to note here that it's just that they're required to provide a bond hearing, not that they're required to release them. Of course, all the same factors that go into a bond hearing are still applicable. Now, the federal government, which is um, the petitioner in both of these cases and so lost below, said that this is just a judge-made timeline that doesn't appear in the statute, and it shouldn't be compelled to you know, follow those rules that are not specifically laid out by Congress, particularly given kind of wide berth that the federal government and the executive is given in immigration areas. Um, and so, as I mentioned, both cases have this issue, but one, Garland versus Gonzalez, has an additional issue of how broadly courts can rule for non-citizens when they're providing relief, and in particular, whether courts can provide injunctive relief to require the government to give bond hearings after six months to all non-citizens, or whether it's just for the person appearing before it. So I think one kind of context uh, to keep in mind here is that it comes as the Biden administration is dealing with a separate but somewhat related issue of whether and how to compensate families that were separated under the Trump administration. And that's, of course, because a lot of these people have been in the United States for a long time and, of course, have family members here. It is a very different case, um, but yet that's, you know, I think something playing in the background. Didn't the Biden administration say they just weren't going to do those payments after some people complained about it? I think that is the latest move. I don't think that's going to be the end of it. You know, we haven't seen those people who were pushing for them say, oh, okay, well, thanks for considering it. And now we'll go away and leave you alone. There's still a lot of pressure on the administration um, to deal with that and a lot of other immigration issues. And, you know, I think immigration is a really um, kind of squishy area for particularly Democratic administrations. So we see here that the Biden administration is continuing kind of a long line of former administrations who are seeking to detain um, immigrants for more than six months without providing 
a bond hearing, something you think traditionally Democratic presidents might not be for. Um, but again, the federal government kind of has this through line when it comes to immigration um, that they want to have broad authority over it. So we do see these kind of cases where, you know, the base is not very happy about the decisions that the administration is making in immigration cases. Yeah, there's a bipartisanship to that tough on crime 80s, 90s era mentality that kind of overlaps with the immigration stuff too. That's true, because a lot of these cases do deal with individuals, non-citizens who have been um, convicted of crimes. So, Should we finish up the week with your favorite topic? Uh, I know. I'm so sad that, that it fell where you're doing this one. But go ahead. Let's see what you come up with. Let's see if you, let's see if you make RBG proud or not. Okay. Well, that's no pressure. <laughs> that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> okay. Last case of the week on Wednesday, Beckler. This is a tax case. It is not. That nope. <laughs> You're already failing. Didn't already even failing. finish a sentence. There's taxes in the case, but, but, but it implicates your favorite civil procedure question, Kimberly, jurisdiction versus claims processing. So in tax cases, there's a 30-day limit to file a petition for review of what's called an IRS notice of determination in the tax court. The question, though, the thing that you're interested, Kimberly, is whether that limit is a jurisdictional requirement or a claims processing rule subject to equitable tolling. So in this case, a firm mailed the petition a day late, just a day, but late. And the government said that because that 30-day limit is a jurisdictional requirement, the firm is out of luck. If the court doesn't have jurisdiction, it can't hear the case, that's it. But if the time limit was a claims processing rule, as the firm argues, then it could have possibly been excused for the delay. How is that, Kimberly? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's okay. You forgot to mention that this is kind of was a quest of, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who looked at the way that the Supreme Court had talked about the word jurisdiction in the past and kind of said that it had been kind of loosey-goosey um, with that term. And so the court in a number of cases um, has been trying to sort out what rules are really jurisdictional and deprive the courts of authority to hear them at all, no matter what, or what rules are just kind of like these claims processing rules that make it easier for courts and agencies to deal with stuff, and they have a little bit more flex in them um, to take into account equitable considerations. Otherwise, great. Really. <laughs> Bravo. Kimberly, now that listeners are armed with that proper context, I think we can set them forth into the week to listen to these arguments. What do you say? I think so. And we'll be back next week with another uh, sneak peek of the second week of arguments in January. And until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks for listening. You ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? You ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe at On The Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On The Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now, and we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. On The Merits is hosted by me, David Schultz, and you can hear it wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.